You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I'm going to invite you now, as is our custom, to open the Bible with me. I want you to join me in Matthew chapter 5. That is uh, the first of the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell us the good news of the person and work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is told from the perspective of a disciple that is Matthew. And so you now we're going to try to pick up where we've left off over the last over the last little bit of time, uh, and we're going to try to pick up in our journey in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. And so if you don't have a device or, or, or a way to get a Bible in front of you, you'll see a paperback Bible uh, in, in the chair in front of you, and uh, you'll make your way to page 472. The big numbers are the chapter, will be in chapter 5, and, and the smaller numbers are the verses that are, that are numbered so we can navigate the text. And so we're going to read just verses 17 through 20. This is in the middle of Jesus' first major of five discourses that Matthew tells us. In many ways, the most significant, we know it, and you might have heard of it, is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I shared this with you over the last couple of weeks. This is the most highly, right, this is the most highly studied and exegeted, that is, uh, interpreted text in the Bible. There are more books and sermons and discussions on this particular text than any other. And so on one hand, it's, it's a humbling task, right? Because who am I and who are we to go like, oh no, I, I know, I know, I see through this and I can help us under, right? But on the other hand, we're, we're stepping into a mystery here. That Jesus is for us the, 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 the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament dreams, and we'll see this, including we see in the Sermon on the Mount, which for, for Christians and, and people who are who are savvy with the Old Testament, there's a particular story about, about a man named Moses who helped, by God's grace, deliver his people from bondage in Egypt. And, and as they were set free, God gives them his word, speaks them, so they won't be wandering in silence, but to have heard and understood God's word. This man Moses, as a, as a deliverer, comes and brings God's word from a mountain. And so Matthew is, is speaking with a, like a, a tongue-in-cheek and a big heavy wink, like, and Jesus brought God's word from a mountain, right? right? And, and this is for us, uh, a picture for us to see, to see that just this Jesus is this new deliverer who will deliver us not just from bondage in Egypt, like, like Israel, but, but instead God will, through Jesus, deliver us from sin, death, and hell. And so we're going to read verse 17 through 20 in, in Matthew chapter 5. Last week we saw that, and the week before that, a picture of this kingdom that Jesus is preaching can be seen in the way that we live by an otherworldly sense of happiness, blessing, and congratulation, and then an otherworldly sense of identity, that, that we are now in the world that is decaying, salt, and preservative. And in and, and, and a world that is dark, we are now, because of Christ, light. So beginning in verse 17, what well, will begin a, a long discourse for the next couple of weeks on a way of understanding the law, that is what God expects of people, the, the way that God is seen and made visible in the world, his character is made visible, Jesus explains what he means. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We believe this is God's word, and I pray that it becomes more than ink on a page for us, but, but even the very voice of God for the people of God. I want to begin with a question. In a text about righteousness, obedience, and goodness, I want to pose to you a point to ponder. How good are you on a scale of 1 to 10? On a scale of 1 to 10... How good are you? Be honest. You can write it down even. At the very least, I want you to have a number in your head. Have a number in your head. Maybe you don't want anyone else to know that number, right? On a scale of 1 to 10, how good are you? The language of this text would ask, how righteous are you? Now, I want to ask it in a different way. Compared to a holy and perfect God, how good are you on a scale of 1 to 10? Compared to a holy and righteous and perfect God, a God who is a father, who loves his people, in him there was no shadow of turning, a God who is so good that every good and perfect gift flows from him, a God that is so good that we sing that he is the, the fount of every blessing. Compared to that righteous, good, holy, kind, and merciful God, how good are you? On a scale of 1 to 10, as you compare your righteousness to the righteousness of God, where do you land on a scale of 1 to 10? You see, because if you have different numbers to the answers to those two questions, how good do you think you are? And then, no, how good do you think you are compared to a righteous God? Then you have defined God by your own understanding of goodness rather than understood goodness through the lens of the character of God. I would even say, and I think Jesus emphasizes this in profound and unique detail here, you're delusional about your goodness. If those numbers are different, and Jesus says, there's only one way to understand goodness. There's only one way to understand righteousness, and that is to behold God alone. And so this passage of Scripture lays out in detail Jesus saying his intent toward the law. There's so many layers to this, we won't be able to cover them all. I'll try to point out, hopefully, a couple of, of important principles that will encourage you and challenge you and, and, I think, do what Jesus means to do. But you'll see for the rest of this chapter, Jesus says some bold and provocative statements. We'll, we'll work through them one by one over the weeks to come, and I, I want you to see they're, they're profoundly provocative. You can even look there with me, verse 21, you have heard it said... You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Well, what's he doing there? He's quoting a law, one of the Ten Commandments. That is this kind of, uh, this composition of the Ten, the, the Decalogue, we call them, like the, the Ten, the, abs the Ten Laws, the Ten Ways of Living, the Ten Things that reflect God's character, and then our lives reflect Him by obeying them. 
So he's saying, you've heard it said, but look after that. Verse 22, but I say to you. Now I'll try to come up with better examples for this. It'll be just fairly repetitive, but I think Jesus means to do that as well. But verse 27, he does the same thing. You've heard it said that what? You shall not commit adultery. What's he doing? He's quoting another of the Ten Commandments. But then he says, but I say to you. And so he's quoting an authoritative law and then saying, but I say to you. Right? Again, maybe I'll come up with a better one, but, but at least for today, think of it this way. It'd be like if I told you, you have heard it said that you should come to a complete stop at a stop sign. But I say to you, Right, like, what have I already communicated about my relationship to stop signs, the law, and what it means to adhere to that law? Like, you would, you would, your first question would be like, who do you think you are? Like, what, what are you? You get, you get to speak by fiat and make laws about stop signs? I wish. But Jesus, over and over and over here, says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that his disciples in his kingdom under his reign and his rule will see the world differently and they will even see what is good and bad differently. And so what we'll find is that the Pharisees are quite offended by this. For the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to find Jesus butting heads with these the scribes and Pharisees mentioned here. The, the, in this case, the interpreters of the law and the practitioners of the law. Hear Jesus and, and hear what he's saying, that Jesus believes he has authority that is above the law, that supersedes the law. But Jesus wants us to know right off the bat, he's not trying to undermine or destroy the law, but instead, in the very first verse, to fulfill it. Think of it this way. The last, last chapter, um, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4, Matthew tells us about this public ministry that begins, and then he immediately goes into one of the first profound sermons, the first of five, maybe the greatest In verse 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, turn. Stop living under the reign and rule of other kings, of worldly kingdoms, and instead see that God's kingdom, the kingdom of God alone, after all, Matthew is a religious man, and he's not going to use for his Jewish audience the, the name of the Lord, the ineffable name. Instead, he's going to use the word heaven, right? The kingdom of God that we see in Matthew, or excuse me, Mark and Luke. Matthew's saying the exact same thing, but he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience that wouldn't be very comfortable if he said the word God. So he simply says the kingdom of heaven, knowing that his Jewish audience wouldn't know what he meant. That under God's rule and reign, this is what it will look like. And so he's saying God's kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's happening. God is in charge. Now live like it. That is to say that for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, certainly the rest of the chapter, you'll find that how you live your life reveals who is king and under what kingdom and rule you live. How you live points to something. Whether you like it or not, how you live points to something or someone that you believe is in charge, that has authority, that has sovereignty. If you don't like those words, just think of it in terms of like, it's the thing that's the most beautiful, it's the thing that's the most lovely in your life. And how you live points to that thing that you love, the thing that you desire, the thing that you long for, the thing that you really want, the thing that you really believe if you had all of your life would be better, the way to the good life heaven on earth. And how you live reveals what you value. And Jesus is going to say this, how you relate to others, how you relate to the opposite sex, how you relate to money, how you relate to even your enemies, how you relate to God in prayer reveals what you truly love and what you truly value. And he's going to systematically disassemble almost all of our preconceived ideas about those things. 
But the first way he does it is he says, this is not in some sense to undo what God has already says. Instead, this is to fulfill what God has promised. So even in the first verse, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word is pregnant with meaning. There is more here than we have time to say, much less more here than can fit in a library, and we're trying. This idea that there's a relationship to what God has promised in his creation, in his promise to be with the people who have rebelled against him time and time and again, showing them mercy, giving them hope that one day all things will be made new. All those promises, all of those stories, the longings of the people's hearts that would have been listening to this, and I would say even the longings of your heart and mine, maybe even the ones that you were afraid to admit, all your secret fears and desires and dreams evidently have a relationship to Jesus that I think I just spoke to the person on my phone. I apologize. I'm glad it wasn't all of your phones. The word that you would describe that relationship between God's promises and what Jesus has done, between the longings of your heart and who Jesus is, can be summed up in that single word at the end of verse 17. Fulfilled. Fulfilled. That's not a word we use often. I do like the way we do currently use it, right? Because after all, our city is on the verge of getting an Amazon fulfillment center, right? And if you've ever thought about fulfillment, boy, Amazon is making a pretty strong case for it, right? Like, this is what fulfillment is. One click. One click? One click. One click. Bang, there. Now, for a bunch of consumeristic people, that is the good life, right? That's heaven. I don't even have to get up. I don't even have to go anywhere. I don't have to do anything, and I get what I want, in some small way, that's fulfillment. And Jesus says that all of the stories that seem to end as an anticlimax, all of those stories, right? The people, the very first story, people in a garden, everything's perfect and God's there. You'd be like, that's, man, that's amazing. Everything's perfect, but well, what do you find out? The problem isn't the circumstance. The problem is the sinful, rebellious hearts of God's people. And even when things are perfect, they rebel against him. And you're left longing. Can we get back there? Can we go back to that place where there's no no shame, conflict, where we're just in a garden in God's presence? And every story sounds that way. Can we just be set free? Can we just be delivered? Can we just not be oppressed? Can we have our own place? And the people who were listening to this, like, hey, can we just not be under Roman rule? And all of these desires we find here are fulfilled in Jesus. All of those stories that seem like they have an ending that we're not quite happy with. So, Here's what I want to pose for you. When it comes to salt and light of last week or the blessings and congratulations of the Beatitudes before that, that once we know who we are in light of who God is, then we know what to do. Once we know who we are, once we have a a firm sense of who we are and our purpose in the world, then we know what to do. And what I think you'll find is the norms of God's kingdom in Matthew chapter 5 are just that. Here's what it would look like if you were living in light of the perfect king. Here's what it would look like. Here's what your life would look like if you saw Jesus as the good king. 
Not an earthly king who sends subjects out to die for their political causes. Not earthly authorities that use you for power and position. But a good king, a king whose kingdom is upside down. A king that instead of killing his own subjects and sending them to die for his purposes, he goes out in front of them and dies for them. This is an upside down kingdom with a good and righteous king. And Matthew wants to show here that once you know that, once you live under his reign and rule, then you begin to find joy, blessing, happiness, and in this case, meaning, understanding, to know why everything is the way that it is, to see yourself in light of a story that's being told from eternity past. And Jesus has come to fulfill every single aspect of it. So the first verse shows us that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Verse 18, we find out that the law will be accomplished. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Think of those as the two most insignificant markers in the Hebrew language, iota, uh, or, or in this case, like Hebrew or Greek, like there's, there's not a single insignificant part of God's law. None of it will pass. And in the end, I love what he says, the good news in verse 18, it, it, they won't pass away until they've all been accomplished. So we've got two things. One is there's this picture of, a picture of authority that God, when he speaks and reveals himself to us, that what is promised and what is being pointed toward will come to pass. And so we get not only a picture of God's goodness to speak to his people, not to leave us in silence, but also the knowledge that what he speaks and what he promises will come to pass. Third thing you see here in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not talking about some like levels of heaven. Right? And we know this because at the very end he even says, look, if you don't have righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom. That is, it. When he says least and greatest, he's talking about like under God's reign and rule, here are the things that are valuable and here are the things that are worthless. Here are the things that are great and grand and, and worthy of honor and here are the things that are not. But we find here in verse 19 that, that your place in the kingdom is directly connected to how you see God's word how you see God's promises, how you see God's law. And then lastly, verse 20 says that ultimately we're to have righteousness that is exceeding. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, these are the most righteous people that anyone would have known at that point, then you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. Here are the demands. Oh, by the way, you're never going to make it. Did you hear it? Here are the things that you must have. You must see God's promises and trust them. You must see God's law and obey them. Oh, by the way, you have to be more righteous than anyone you've ever seen. Your righteousness has to exceed what what anyone around you would think is the most righteous. It's beyond your imagination. And you see this powerful paradox, don't you? God has given us commands and expected us to reflect him in, his obedient, in our obedience. And then what do we find out? Oh, by the way, you're never going to do them. So I want to define some terms. And I kind of want to summarize what he's saying. I hope to challenge and encourage you with it. 
Jesus poses two errors in these four verses. Did you catch them? The first error is that the Old Testament laws, the story of God's revelation of his people and deliverance and mercy towards them, the first error is that those Old Testament stories and laws no matter, no longer matter, that they can be abandoned. Think of it this way. The first error is that what God says doesn't matter. The second error he points out in the very next verse is that careful and, and literal observance of the law like the scribes and, and Pharisees is the way to righteousness. As if nothing changed when Jesus the Messiah had come. So if the first error is that what God has said in the past is irrelevant, then the second error is that the coming of the Messiah is irrelevant. Namely, that what God has done and said to us in Jesus is irrelevant. So our two temptations, apparently here, are one, to ignore what God has said, and two, to ignore what Jesus has done. And I think, I think if, when, when, you, when you kind of think of how he systematically shows the extremes and invites us to, to consider our inability to, to avoid them, is an invitation for grace. So you've got two things that are an error, and he's implying something here. That our only hope is that God's perfect and righteous law has been fulfilled by Jesus. What a profound way to say it. I've come to fulfill something. Oh, by the way, you better, you better be completely, perfectly obedient to it. And you'll never do that. And so Jesus is posing for us a paradox. Something that scholars are, have struggled to interpret. But, but I, I would say that paradox is meant to sit heavily on each of you. It's meant to invite you into in a kind of despair over sin. What I would say here is an invitation to despair over your own inability to be righteous. And so Jesus is explaining that ultimately all of these things that have been promised in the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. So in light of that despair, we're somehow immediately met with the good news that Jesus like, I mean, like the instant, we'll say more about it in a minute, but like the instant we, we despair over our own lack of righteousness, like the minute, this is the powerful thing, the minute you feel the weight of this, like, do you hear what he's saying in verse 20? You will never be righteous enough to be in the presence of God. And the minute that despair hits you, like the instant, I mean, you can't even, you can't measure on a stopwatch. The instant that despair hits you, Jesus moves in and says, don't worry, I've got a kingdom come. Think of the fulfillment in this way. Luke 24 says it this way. Jesus resurrected, meeting with some people walking along the way. He says to them, oh, foolish ones. I love it. When Jesus calls you a foolish person. You're like, oh, I get it. Maybe that's not for you. It's just for people like me. We're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What a rebuke. What is, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And this is beautiful in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If I could have been a fly on the wall in any place in any of history, like that's what I would have really liked to have heard that sermon. I would have, that would have been a really, really helpful place to be. Now, I don't think we're at a loss. I think 
the Holy Spirit, especially through the, the writing in the New Testament, gives us everything we need there. But holy smokes, why are we wasting time with other sermons? I would have liked to have heard that one. Foolish one. You, didn't you know God's going to keep his promise? And then he walked through the entirety of the Bible and said, didn't you, didn't you know didn't you know that everything that had been longed for, everything that had been promised, everything that everything, everything that everyone had ever wanted, ultimately was pointing to me? That all things point to him? Remember we saw this in our walk through the Gospel of John? Jesus says to them, he says, before Abraham was, I am, which is a play on words to say even before Abraham was, I, I existed as God, the I am. And he showed them that, that even though they may think they understand the Scripture, they miss the point of the Scripture because they don't realize that it testifies to Jesus. So Jesus is saying here something profound. And I, I want to say it as many ways as I possibly can for the rest of our time. If you've got like, I don't know, what is it, two truths and a lie? This is like two lies and a truth, right? Lie number one, the Old Testament doesn't matter. Lie number two, Jesus doesn't matter. But the truth here is that Jesus is our only hope. And our only hope then, if the, if the Old Testament matters, if God's expectation for righteousness is true, and if what Jesus has done is true, then our only hope is that the two are working together. That God's righteous demands, his righteous expectations, because he is perfect, are met for us in Jesus. Otherwise, we're sunk. And we're left with utter despair. And if you look at those two ways of missing it, right, one is to think that the law, God's expectation, and God's holiness is somehow not what you think it is. It's less than. Think of this, we describe this in, in gospel communities as, as licentiousness, that is, license. That is, I have the license now to do what I want, right? I'm better than, I understand this better, right? Think of this as the way to justify that might even, there's a million ways, but one of the most common I hear is just like, hey man, it's 2022, right? Like we've graduated from this. Like as time has progressed, so have we. And so therefore, these things don't apply to me. God expecting holiness doesn't apply to me. There's a new set of rules and laws we have to adhere to. And they go something like, you know, as long as you're being yourself, you're being authentic. And as long as you're not hurting anyone, Right? And that's, that's not helpful, right? In, in that sense, that, that's saying, I was thinking that it would be perfect. I think God is perfect, but, but I don't really, those things don't apply to me. Whereas the other error, what we would describe as legalism. That is that, in this sense, Jesus matters. Jesus has fulfilled the law, and so therefore, I don't have to obey anything. I just have grace, right? I'm just forgiven, right? Like, hey, man, you should repent of that. I have grace. Like, hey, that was wrong, and you, like, you should stop doing that. Like, oh, just grace. You know, you get the idea that, like, uh, or that, that's, a picture of, that's a picture of a response, to it, which is license. But, but think of the legalism is the, is the imposition that, like, you still have to obey these things or else. You still have to be good. You still have to do these things. And God's grace in Jesus is insignificant. So on one hand, in that sense, you're kind of like, I do whatever I want. The Old Testament, God's promise and provision for me don't matter. Or I must do everything right, otherwise God's promise and provision doesn't apply to me. And Jesus is implying here 
paradoxically, by setting up a situation that you can't possibly solve, it's not a math equation you could make work, that he's going to fulfill all the expectations that God requires. All of the longings, all of the dreams, all of the hopes, Jesus is going to grant them. Maybe in a way that we won't quite understand. I want to point out a side note here. This may go without saying here, but I think it's important. Jesus trusts and believes the Bible. Uh, Jesus refers to what's revealed by God's grace throughout the Old Testament as true. Um, so just, just as a warning, if you ever find yourself thinking like, I, I understand the Bible better than Jesus, you're probably in kind of like some dangerous territory. Uh, that is a, I just want to point out, this is, this is a big deal for us as a church. We really do trust that God has revealed himself in history and in the recording of history in the Old and New Testament. Now, here's the thing. Does that mean that we have no questions? Absolutely not, right? I gave you one, like, hey, how does, how does Jesus fulfilling all of these things, like Luke 24, like, I don't know, I wish I was there, right? That would have been really great. That would have been really helpful, right? This doesn't mean we don't have questions. But after all, if you had all the answers to your questions, you wouldn't have faith. You wouldn't have trust, but I think it's important to point out here, and we try to emulate this as best we can, we really do trust that God speaks through the Scripture. And the reason why is because Jesus did. You'll see more and more of that throughout the rest of the, this, this entire book, but certainly in the next three chapters. So, Jesus has a commitment to the law, to the Scriptures, that's complete. And if I were to offer a second principle, kind of a, a way to see this that, that I think would be encouraging for us, is that in the end, we, we often think that God will love us because we are good. Maybe God will love us because we are good enough. And what you find in this rebuke here is that God loves us because He is good. God doesn't love us because we are good or even good enough, but God loves us because He is good. And maybe that'll begin to like as you wrestle with the despair of I'm never righteous enough, begin. That's, that's the point. That's the point of the Scripture. And so think of the law here as God's family rules. Think of God's kingdom and His reign and rule as just the customs in your family. And so many of us see laws or commands. We hear Jesus speaking and telling us what to do. And it, man, it gets, it, it gets brutal with respect, to, with respect to sex and sexuality, with respect to the way that men and women relate, with the, with the way that we relate to money and generosity, right? All, he's, it's going to get ruthless. And many of us think, like, God is, God is out to ruin my joy. God is out to bring, make me miserable by telling me all the things I can and can't do. Here's all the fun things I was going to do, and now these laws come in, God's commands and expectations come in, and they're here to make me miserable. But, but I, I want you to, to begin to kind of speak against that, begin to push back against that. It's more like you were abandoned, lonely, and cast off, and hopeless, and God has adopted you into his family, and now this is what it looks like to live in the new house. Now, many of you know this, right? Like, Walk into someone's house, take off your shoes, right? Unless you're a pagan. That's not true at all. I've spent most of my life not taking off my shoes. That's, I'm not sure I believe in that one yet either. Right? But what are the customs in your family, good and bad? You don't think of those things as miserable. 
Now think of the Ten Commandments in light of that, right? Think of the grace built into God's mercy here in the law. Right? Imagine, imagine laws like this. You're abandoned, you're, you're without hope, right? And, and a loving, generous father comes along and says, I want you to move in with me. And I want you to know this is how we're going to live. Are you ready? Right? Stop living in, in, in helpless and hopeless ways. Come enjoy my presence and mine alone. Stop thinking other people will care for you and love you. I will love and care for you, I promise you. Once a week, right, every seven days, we're just going to have fun together. I'm not going to work. You're not going to work. We're just going to spend time and just enjoy the fact that we're together. I'm just going to spend all day telling you how much I love you and enjoying your presence. And here's the thing. I love you, and I love your brother and your sister. And so because, because of that, I, you don't have to take from your brother and sister because I'm going to give you everything you need. You don't even have to covet and envy what your brother and sister have because I'm going to give you everything you could possibly need. You don't need to harm them. Do, do you see a different way of understanding God's law? You see, if you see God's law as a, a hindrance upon your life and your joy, then what you're ultimately saying is that you're God and you're king, and his kingdom is an attack, as opposed to you are helpless and hopeless with no righteousness of your own, and yet God in his mercy has invited you to live in his house and live by his rules? I mean, just think of the absurdity of like, hey, I'm, I'm going to need you to eat meals with us. How would a person who's starving to death respond to that? Like, don't tell me what to do. Don't interrupt my starvation and homelessness, right? Do you get the idea? But that analogy falls apart, doesn't it? Because God doesn't just help us in our homelessness. To tell that story right, you'd have to tell it differently. Imagine you were dead. Imagine you were rotting six feet under. Imagine all sorts of parasites had already started to feed on your body and you were decomposing. Now how awesome is it that one day a week God wants to spend the day with you alive and resting? You get it? We often think that God loves us based on our goodness. But Jesus wants us to be confounded with this to realize we can't be good enough so that we'll begin to receive the good, the good news that God loves us because of his goodness. And his goodness is so much better than ours, infinitely better. So having established Jesus, kind of having established his credentials as a Jewish authority, he then starts to kind of disassemble these expectations that have been put on people. He's this new Moses come from the mountain, but but we're left with kind of a thing here. Is, is Jesus just saying that like he's going to start a movement of just more obedient people? Right? If, if the Jewish people are living according to God's law, is Jesus starting a movement of like the people who are really obedient? No, he says that he's going to do something that's going to fulfill all of those expectations. He's going to bring to completion everything that was originally intended by God. He's going to bring to fruition all of the things that we have wanted. It won't, it won't abrogate or eliminate these moral principles. They'll remain unchanged. But how you are atoned and forgiven when you break these laws will. So he's not abolishing Scripture. Instead, he's getting at our own hearts. Here's another principle maybe to think of it. 
right? Jesus is doing something here that he's already predicted. Do you, do you remember a, few, a couple of weeks ago? We saw a list of blessings that are countercultural. They're otherworldly even. And if you'll notice, in the very middle of it, you can go back to it if you want, in verse 6, kind of the turning point of the Beatitudes or these blessings. He said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, in one sense, what we're going to find for the next several weeks is Jesus is going to show you what living in these blessings in his kingdom will look like. And he starts, right, if even one of the, the most well-known, blessed are the, are the meek, right, or the poor in spirit, impoverished spiritually, right? And, and what better way to make a person feel impoverished spiritually than to say as clearly as possible, you will never measure up, right? You, you, you have no ability to be as good as you want to be, right, ever. In some sense, he's, he's, he's by his teaching and illustration helping to make us understand what meekness is, right? Because to begin to embrace that is, is, the, is to embrace what it means to be poor in spirit. Like, oh, man, I'm really, I'm really not going to make it. That's meekness, right? A poor in spirit, a, a poverty of spirit. And so Jesus is beginning to kind of like, in some ways, systematically give us a picture of what these Beatitudes look like. That God is doing something here in Jesus, bringing a kingdom that only He can bring. And like I said, it doesn't mean that all your questions are answered, but it does mean that everything that you could want, right? We see this in, in the New Testament, everything that you could ask, or, or excuse me, beyond even anything you could ask for or imagine, that's what God is giving us in Jesus, and so these promises are fulfilled in really powerful ways. After all, the seed of the, of the woman in the garden who will crush the serpent's head, Jesus, fulfilled. The offspring of Adam that will, that through, through which will bless the nations, Jesus. He's the lamb. He's the high priest. He's the true son of David. We saw that in the first list of, of, Jesus, of Jesus' genealogy. The prophets spoke about and on behalf of God, and Jesus now speaks as God. And all of the punishments loaded into the law are preparing us for what we will see at the cross. This is beautiful because it illustrates in detail that God doesn't love us based on our goodness. God loves us based on his. And Jesus is the fulfillment of our deepest longings. So, here's another way to think about it. Obedience to the law here is not a means of salvation. The law is a pointer to the Savior who brings salvation. Remember what I told you, that, that deep despair of no one can be righteous. No one's righteous enough to, to be in God's kingdom. God's too perfect. He's too holy. Now, you know this. There are some people who are just frankly, above you, right? And you can't spend time with them. You're not good enough, right? You're not famous enough. You're not rich enough. There are circles. There are tables you'll never get invited to. And you know that. You may not like it, but you know what that feels like. Now multiply that times the infinite perfection of God, and then you begin to understand, oh, there, are, there is a presence, uh, there's a presence in certain beings I will never attain. I will never merit. I'm not righteous enough. And yet, that despair is meant to point us. That, that realization is meant to point us to how beautiful the good news of Jesus is. 
The other thing you're going to find out over the next couple of weeks is some things that I've said a lot in discipleship or in gospel community or even from from the stage are things that I get from the Sermon on the Mount. And one of them is kind of a paraphrase of John Stott and, and, and Jack Miller, d- different other authors, and then, and then Tim Keller, who, who says it this way, right? Like, like, surprise, you are more sinful and worse off than you thought possible. And yet, surprise, you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dream. And where do we get that? We get that here. You are not righteous. You're worse than you think. Even the most righteous person you could think of, eh, you're not even that righteous, but you have to be more righteous than them. You're hopeless. You're more hopeless than you originally thought. And yet, as that despair creeps in, so does the good news of God's grace. You're more loved than you could ever imagine. That while you were dead in your sin, Christ died for the ungodly. This is good news because deep down, You probably live in one of two places, either deep denial or deep despair. Probably your your default disposition on a given day is one of those things. Or maybe you find a way to do more than one on the same day. I, I have. Deep denial, I'm not really that bad. You can always think of someone who's worse than you. Right? And and we find we find here like that that in and of itself is a form of self righteousness. And Jesus begins to systematically disassemble that, right? He says later here, like, look, hey, if you have someone who's done something against you, they have a speck in their eye, you go to them, but first you address the log in your own. Did you hear what he's saying? Like, if you can find people who are more sinful than you, you don't know you. And so what, he, what he's telling you is that, like, deep down, you'll either live in denial to that fact or you'll live in despair. And so many of you spend most of your life hiding your sin, hiding secretly, the things that you do that you don't want anyone to know about. Or on the other hand, you probably, if not in denial, then you're in deep despair because you know how true this is. You probably feel it this way. This is why I tend to see it in people and myself. Every day you wake up and and you know, like there's this something in you that you're not good enough. You're driven to succeed because down deep, you're terrified you're not enough. You don't measure up. Some of you want to blame your parents for that, or some of that. They might be. They probably didn't help. Uh, but I want you to blame what we find here is the lack of righteousness in ourselves. And so you probably. Why is this important? Why? Why would I say Jesus fulfills these promises? Because down deep, probably one of these two extreme, two extremes describes you. You live in denial, always finding a way out, someone to blame, because you're terrified of what's true. What Jesus says here, that you lack a righteousness of your own, or in despair, because you know you lack the righteousness he says we're to have. But I want you to see how this works for us. Here is how you come into God's kingdom, with an eye to your own lacking of righteousness. And after, you know, it's going to be hard not to be repetitive. That's what he said in verse 6, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Like if you're like, I, I, I'm good on righteousness. I don't, need, I don't need any righteousness. I'm perfectly righteous on my own. Then you won't know what it means to be deeply satisfied. But he says here, the people who will come into God's kingdom. Do you hear that? I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. These would have been the, the greatest law givers. 
uh, and, and the greatest practitioners of the law, and, and unless you're more righteous than them, then you won't even enter into God's rule and reign. And so we come into God's kingdom with that, realizing that we lack a righteousness in and of ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean we are utterly and completely, right? We, we bear God's image. We're not utterly and completely unjust and unrighteous. There are common graces that you and I get to enjoy. You're, you're not as awful as you could be, but you are certainly more awful than you know what to do with. And yet he says here that like, even on your best day, your most obedient your most obedient acts, the things when you think you're really being righteous and pure, even those were done for probably pure, impure motives. One art, I heard this said this way, one, um, in this sense, like, a commentarian put it this way, like, if, if the scribes and Pharisees are the best lawyers here, then Jesus is the best cardiologist here. Because while they, while they speak about the, the outward obedience to the law, Jesus comes and says, if your heart is not in the right place, then it doesn't matter what you do with your hands. And so we come into God's kingdom when we realize that. That our lack of righteousness goes deeper than we want to admit. You know those thoughts you have that you pray no one ever finds out? Do you feel it? On one hand, that's much worse than you would care to admit. And on the other, Jesus who comes to display and give his perfect righteousness is sufficient even for that. Let me think of it this way. Galatians 3, Jesus explains this. Galatians 3, Paul explains this to the Galatians. I regularly misattribute sources, but when you do it in the Bible, it gets ugly. So, <laughs> the Apostle Paul writing to a church, and it maybe if you're like me, then you're left then. Okay, so what do we do with the law? And, I, and Paul's like, that's a great question. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Do you hear that? So what's the purpose of the law? Well, many theologians across history have tried to like help us understand this, that it serves as a curb. That is, it, in some sense, it helps limit and it helps control and, and helps inhibit us from doing wrong and harmful things to one another. But even then, we know the limits of that. That doesn't actually make anyone, like, just because you pass a law doesn't mean that anyone's going to obey it, right? But it's still better than saying, like, hey, do whatever you want, right? And that's a grace. That's, that's what God gives us in the law. But it also serves as a mirror. It reveals the righteous and perfect character of God and our own sinfulness. It leaves us with a, a distress. And so we see here, like, why is the law? Well, because of transgression. Because it was going to point to, like, there's something broken. There's something, there's something that's separated between us and our Creator, and so it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now he says more that God is one, he's working something. But, but at the very end of this passage, he says then, I commend this to you for your reflection this week, Galatians chapter 3. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Do you hear that, do, do you hear that language that, that Paul's trying to illustrate? That, that, that despair, that, that awfulness when you realize you can't be as righteous as you want to be and you certainly can't be more righteous than, than you must be. It leaves us in despair. And he says, before, before we saw Jesus, that despair we were in was captivity. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about being uh, like slave to sin. We were imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. So what do we do with the law? 
Now the third use of it, it guides us. The law is now written on our hearts because we know how unrighteous we are and we've received Christ's perfect righteousness. Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all now sons of God through faith. We saw this elsewhere a few weeks ago. Paul tells the Corinthians a very similar thing. For our sake, he that is Jesus made him to be sin who knew knew no sin in order that what? We might become the righteousness of God. So, think of it this way. The law, even I I commend Deuteronomy 13 to you. It's one of the most terrifying places uh, where in God's, God's people delivered that if someone were to tempt you to idolatry, they should be put to death. Right? So it's like, so we're going to still do that? Are we going to put people to death for tempting us to idolatry? I hope not. We'd all be, I mean, that's it. That's it. Bye. Like, that'd be, it'd, be one, we're all, it'd be one mass killing and it's over. Like, well, that's the end of that, right? So, so is he saying we should still live that way? No, but he is pointing to something, isn't it? That to turn from God, to leave the confines of his adopting and loving home is to experience death. And thanks be to God, Jesus has now borne that death. Jesus has taken the place. He has given us. Did you hear that? Like, he knew no sin. He had the righteousness we needed. And yet, since we didn't have it, he took our place so that our our righteousness would be given to him. He would wear it, carry it, bear the penalty of it, right? He He would be the one punished for the idolater and the tempter, and we would be counted as righteous before God. Think of it this way. God is doing something here that you cannot do yourself. And the way that Jesus is pointing us to this is shocking. That you cannot be righteous enough. Jesus alone is perfectly obedient. Jesus alone lived out these beatitudes. Jesus alone was the one who didn't revile and slander even though he was being falsely accused. Jesus Jesus alone is the one who was a peacemaker and meek. Jesus alone is the salt and light that preserves, saves, and gives light to the darkness. Jesus alone does these things. I'll leave you with an illustration. What Jesus is saying here is that instead of minimize, what, Jesus didn't come to minimize God's holiness and perfection. He came to meet it for us. In light of this, right, in light of if, if for our sake he became sin for us, Here's an analogy I'll leave you with. Imagine I told you something. Imagine I said, I'm going to reimburse all of your expenses from here on out. I'm going to reimburse all your expenses. Whatever you need, you just need to, you need to admit it. You need to account for it. Now, that's especially important. What if, what if it meant like, I'm going, to, I'm going to pay for all your debts right now. I'm going to pay all your debts. What would make a person not admit their debt? What would make a person like, oh, I'm going to save some of these receipts? What would make a person say, like, ah, I'm, I'm gonna, I don't want you to cancel this loan. This student loan, I like this one. This one's mine. <laughs> right? Like, my credit card debt, ah, I got this one, right? What would possess a person not to receive such a thing but a form of self-righteousness? A form of selfishness, like, I can do this. Friend, you can admit all the lack of righteousness that you have. You can admit all your failures, all your longings. You can bring all of the receipts to Jesus, and he will pay for, cancel, heal, and fulfill all of them.
For some of you, this means you don't have to hold back anymore. You don't have to be in denial and hide secret sin or secret longings or secret hurts. You can bring them out. You can bring them to the surface. You can bring them to Jesus. He's not surprised. He's the first one to tell you, hey, you don't have the righteousness to deal with this, but I do. And like I said a minute ago, the minute you know that, right, that there's a despair that creeps in when you know you're not good enough and you know you don't measure up. Some of you feel it every day. But notice that once you admit it, once you bring it, once you bring that receipt, in that instant, in that very instant, Jesus moves towards you with a blank check to cover everything you could possibly need. A blank check that fulfills every broken-hearted story in the Bible and a blank check that will satisfy every longing in your heart and mine. Friend, you don't have to come with a righteousness of your own. You can come and experience the gift and grace of Jesus who was perfect on your behalf. I don't know how to say this. Some of you will still think you need to do a really good job this week for the wrong reasons. Like, I'm like, don't, like, some of you will still, you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to be like, I got to, I got to face these disappointments. I got to be in denial about them. I got to live up to standards I can't live up to. And I want you to, I want you to hear this good news. You won't be able to, but there is a savior who has done it on your behalf. There is a swap, an existential swap that has taken place. That all that is broken was borne by Jesus on the cross, and all that is good and righteous in him was given for you to carry forever and ever. And Jesus is ruthlessly thorough. The scary part is that as I summarize this new life in the kingdom and the righteousness and goodness of God, if you're not convicted by these things, and I want you to know something, you're lost. You're not in the kingdom. I have good news for you. You may keep still trying to prove yourself and earn your eternity, right? You might still think, oh, I'm going to measure up. This is the week I do it. This is the week I nail it. Yay. And I just want you to know Jesus is going to be patiently waiting. And when you give up on those pursuits, he's going to flood you with mercy. He's going to welcome you into his kingdom. It may seem like he's intentionally disorienting from our views of goodness and badness, of righteousness and unrighteousness, but that's only so that we will receive the gift of his goodness and his grace. And every receipt, every brokenness, every failure, every disappointment, every wound, Jesus has perfectly paid for and will bind up for you. Remember the first question? How good are you compared to God? I mean, that was a trick question, wasn't it, right? I put a one, you shouldn't even put a one, right? You'd be like a negative infinity. What if I told you a story that's almost too good to be true, that the perfect and loving God came to be with us and for us to bear our sins so that our goodness would surpass the scribes and Pharisees and our goodness would be on par with Jesus, that in Christ, Paul tells the Philippians, we would have a righteousness not of our own, but a righteousness that comes from being found in him. And today you can look to him. You can be found in him. And that denial, that angst, that feeling that you aren't measured up can be dispelled when you realize what God has given to you in Jesus. Jesus. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness towards us. God, I confess uh, these these are truths too mysterious and too 
uh, too great even for me to explain, and so I ask that you would even work a, a work of, of grace, uh, that even in my, in my flailing and my frail attempt to put to words this perfect gift of your righteousness to us would, would be heard and received by faith. God, for those in the room that they know what it feels like to live with a, a deep sense of longing, would you help them even now by faith to see that that longing is caused by sin, but there is a Savior? Maybe for some of us, we've, we've received this gift. It's changed us, but we're so prone to, to move out of the Father's house. We're still prone to want to pay our own debts. To, we're still want to have a value and a righteousness of our own. We may never use those words, Lord, but they're rebellion against you. And so today, would you call us back to yourself? Remind us that you're not surprised. You're not surprised that we couldn't find a, a righteousness in ourselves that exceeds the most righteous people on earth. You're not surprised. You knew that full well, and that's why you sent Jesus, to be for us what we could never be for ourselves. Maybe for some of us, this just frees us from regret. I pray that you would offer healing for those who walk around with resentment. Maybe for some of us, this begins to bind up wounds, harmful things that people have done or said against us. Would you overwhelm them now with what Jesus says? I have fulfilled everything. I will give you everything. There's no blessing I will withhold from you. God, wherever we are in this morning, um, would you draw us back to yourself? You are perfect and holy, and on our own merit, we can't come close to you. We would be incinerated. We would be burned up by, our, by, your, by your perfection. But God, in Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne because it's a throne of grace. All the righteous demands of the law have been met by Jesus so that now we can run to the king who is righteous and perfect, jump in his lap and call him father. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.